0: I wish I was better at making entrances. I feel like I'm not a very impactful entrance maker. That When I walk into a room, nobody really notices. I had a roommate in college who was a much better entrance maker. So I moved down to Georgia College and State, my junior year of college, and I was going to live in an on-campus apartment with a friend of mine, but we were going to get two more roommates that we didn't know. And so we're moving down there. We've got all of our stuff. We've got some people helping us get all of our stuff moved into the apartment. And then the door swings open and in walks Danny. And Danny was this larger than life kind of guy. He was 6'5". He was from Burundi. So he had this thick, amazing African accent. It was wonderful. And he brushed through the door and he just starts yelling his name his own name. It was kind of strange. We were like, "Are you Danny? Am I Danny? I don't know who Danny is." And so he walks in and he's just saying, "I'm Danny, I'm Danny." And he's hitting everybody and hitting hands, he's hitting shoulders. Just just makes this entrance. And he looks around the room while he's doing this, and then he notices the kitchen and he calms down a little bit. And he says, "Oh, in my village, the men didn't do any cooking. The women did all of the cooking. I've never cooked in a kitchen before." I may set our apartment on fire, (laughs) which was horrifying and also kind of prophetic because about a month later at three in the morning, our smoke detectors go off. We run out from our respected bedrooms to find a pillar of smoke with Danny's tall silhouette inside of it and a burning grilled cheese. So he was not kidding. Now, I don't know if Danny's entrance into the room changed my life, but it certainly made an impression. And a good entrance has the ability to do that, to make an impression, to make a lasting impression, and sometimes to really change things. In Jonah's story so far, we've seen a pretty crummy run for this guy. He tried to run away from the call of God. He tried to leave the presence of the Lord and run into Tarshish. He found himself on a ship in the middle of a storm. And then to save their own lives, the sailors throw him overboard. He thinks he's going to die. He thinks this is as bad as it could get. And then he's swallowed by a fish and lives there for a few days and then gets vomited back up on the beach. It's not been such a good ride. But today, we're going to watch as Jonah gets out of the belly of the fish onto the shore, and makes an entrance into a city that would change thousands of lives, including his own. And his entrance into Nineveh is going to be a nice foreshadowing of another important entrance into a city that one day would change the world. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. This morning, we're going to look at Jonah chapter 3 and Jonah's entrance into Nineveh and what happens after he finally obeys the call of God and goes into this city that he was called to prophesy to, and we're going to see things begin to change, and we're going to look at this story, this chapter, like a play in three different acts where we see some things change in very unexpected places, and so from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. The word of the Lord says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it a message I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed on drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his ang- and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we just thank you for the stories we have week after week because it shows us so much of who you are. And God, today as we encounter your unbelievable mercy, May we be overwhelmingly thankful that that's the kind of God that you are. And help us to learn from the example of the Ninevites who turn from their evil ways, who turn from their sin and put themselves in the hands of a merciful and loving God. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The first change we see take place is that Jonah changes his direction. Now, when God tries to get our attention, when God gets our attention, sometimes it's really easy to tell. Sometimes it's really easy to know when God is trying to get our attention, and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it feels a little more like Samuel when God was calling him and he heard this voice in the night and didn't know where it came from and had to go to Eli the priest and figure out what was going on before he understood that it was God calling him. Sometimes we have to spend hours and days and weeks in prayer and we have to talk with our pastors and with with the other people around us and get counsel to know if God is speaking to us or if we're just having a bad dream. Sometimes it's a little more obvious. Sometimes it feels a little more like Paul on the way to Damascus as he's going to persecute Christians, and he meets the resurrected Christ on the road in a way that was undeniable and unavoidable and very obviously a turning point in his life. For Jonah, it was the latter of the two. See, Jonah didn't really need a season of prayer he didn't need to go consult a priest. He didn't need to go talk to all of his friends to know what he needed to do. When you've had a run the way that Jonah had had, when you tried to run away from God and everything, including nature itself, drags you back to the place where you need to be, it's pretty obvious that it's time to do what God is calling you to do. And when you look at the first three chapters of Jonah chapter 1, and the first three, excuse me, verses, and the first three verses of Jonah chapter 3, they parallel each other incredibly well. And a lot of the language is really similar, and that's an, an awesome thing, but we also see the places where they're different, and that jumps off the page. Because in chapter 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But then in chapter 3, we see the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I'll tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. All of a sudden, Jonah has this change of direction where this time, the second time, he heeds the word of God. The first time, he rejects it and stands up and runs the opposite way. And now, after God has brought him back to the place he needs to be and God calls him again to go to Nineveh, this time Jonah says, okay, I'm going to go to Nineveh. But what's amazing about these, these verses of Scripture is how consistent that God is. How calm that God is as he calls Jonah again. Because as a parent, there are times when I have to tell my daughter to do things a second time. Sometimes a third time, sometimes a fourth time, sometimes a fifth time. But sometimes the more times you say something, the more aggravated you get. And so God has gone through great lengths, at least from what we would see. It looks like great lengths to get Jonah back to where he needs to be. Jonah ran away from God. He rebelled against God. And yet here, God doesn't come to Jonah and say, are you ready to go now? There's no animosity in God's voice. There's no harshness in the tone that God lays out to Jonah. It just says that he came to Jonah for a second time. And he said, Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh, the great city And call out against it. The same speech over with the same calmness and the same purity that he had before. It's amazing that God still has use for Jonah. And he doesn't skip a beat in calling Jonah again. There's no re-entry training for Jonah. He doesn't have to go back through any sort of prophet training. God watched him go on his rebellion, brought him back, and said, Now that you're back, it's time to go. We're not skipping a beat, We're not wasting any time. get up and go to Nineveh. We have a tendency, and I say "we," very broadly, but we have a tendency to very easily disqualify ourselves from ministry and to disqualify ourselves from service. We know that God gives us gifts. We know that God has expectations for us when we put our faith in Christ, that as believers that we have a purpose and a role and that he has a plan for our lives. But sometimes it can be very easy when we sin or when we fall short or when we don't do something that we think that we need to do to all of a sudden look at ourselves and say, you know what? God probably can't use me anymore. God probably doesn't have anything in store for me anymore. I've probably missed the boat. I've probably wrecked the ship. There's probably nothing left for me. But the story of Jonah reminds us that God doesn't need clean resumes. That he uses his people for for our good and for his glory. And he uses people with willing hearts, but sometimes he even uses people with hearts that aren't very willing. Because Jonah doesn't seem to be willing at any point in time in the story because he doesn't get better in chapter 4. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh, and yet God is still going to drag him there because he knows that it's good for the city, but it's also good for Jonah. Serving, doing what he's called to do is just as good and just as important for Jonah as it will be for the Ninevites. Because through the work that Jonah does, he will see and he will know God in a deeper way. And he'll be able to understand part of who God is that he never got to see before. This is something that's beneficial for Jonah, just as it is for the people of the city. We have to realize that when we answer God's call, When we go out and we do God's work, when we live our lives the way that God has called us to live, when we use our gifts and put them into practice to do things for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor, we aren't giving God anything. But in fact, he's sharing something beautiful with us through our service. As we work, God is working in and through us. And if we start to think about our service and our work and our ministry as doing something for God, then of course we can start to disqualify ourselves. Because if I'm giving God something that he needs and then all of a sudden I do something that makes myself not as worthy to be a part of it or if I ever thought I was worthy to do it at all, then anytime something comes up and puts a chink in the armor or takes a detour on the road, then of course I can say, "Well, I'm just not the guy for this. I'm not the person for this. I'm not ready for this." Surely God wants to use somebody else or God can get something more from someone else. But when we remember that it's not about us and what we offer to God, but what God is doing through us, it becomes a lot harder to disqualify ourselves from service because it's not about my strength, but about his It's not about my morality, but about his grace. It's not about my giftedness, but the giftedness that God gives me and the giftedness that God uses through me. And all of a sudden, I can't look in the mirror and say, I'm not the guy for God because I'm not questioning myself then. Then I'm questioning God. And this story gives us the freedom to realize that when it comes to doing God's will and doing what God calls us to do, that perfection isn't a prerequisite. And that's really hard to wrap our minds around, but it's true. And there's this very delicate balance that we walk as followers of Christ. Because we have to take very seriously the commandment that Jesus gave us in the Sermon on the Mount to be holy or to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. That's our goal. That's our destination. That's our ambition. And our entire lives should be focused around doing our best to pursue Christ to that kind of level. To day after day be pursuing Christ so that we can be sanctified, so we become more and more like Christ day after day, and to keep reaching out for that perfection. But Paul understood, in the same way that we should, that we keep reaching for that goal, understanding the fact that we haven't obtained it and that we can't obtain it, this side of Christ coming back to make everything right and to make everything new. And so we strive for holiness. We pursue holiness with everything that we have. We want to be like Christ every single moment of every single day. But we also have to have the realization that when we fall, when we sin, when we come up short, that there's God's grace and mercy there to catch us and pick us up and put us back where we need to be. Sometimes it's gently where he just helps us up and puts us back on the road. Sometimes he does for us what he did for Jonah, where he takes us to the brink of the end of our lives and drags us back to the place that we need to be. But once he gets us there, we're there, and it's time to get up and to go, like Paul said, pushing forward, not looking at what's behind, not being held back by that shame and guilt, but trusting in the plan and the design of God and walking in faith in what he's called us to do no matter how qualified we think we are because we serve a God. God who can do all things and work all things through his people for his glory, but also for our good. And so if you're a follower of Christ, if God is calling you and as God calls you, go. No matter who you are, or no matter who you think that you have been, God can and he will use you. And as he does, you'll find that he'll begin to shape you into who he has called you to be. And he does that here for Jonah. And so Jonah changes his direction, and he heads towards Nineveh, and he starts to preach. And he starts to walk through this incredibly great city that it would take him three days to walk across. And he gets one solid day in walking and preaching this message, and this is what he says. It says, Jonah went into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And what's interesting about that sermon that Jonah is delivering, that message that Jonah is proclaiming, is the word overthrown there is the same word that was used to describe what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you know that story, things didn't go well for Sodom and Gomorrah. God didn't simply punish Sodom and Gomorrah, but he wiped them off the face of the planet. And so this doesn't seem to be a story that's shaping up to be a very pretty picture. But unlike what happens in Sodom and Gomorrah, God does something unique here because he sends this prophet to give them a warning. And so Jonah goes through and he proclaims this message, and it seems like a very difficult thing. It doesn't seem like it's turning out to be a good story, but then the other change happens. Because Jonah changed his direction, all of a sudden we see Nineveh change their hearts. Now, I wish there was a recording of this sermon. I wish there was some kind of ancient Israelite podcast that I could go to listen to to hear what it sounds like when Jonah preaches this message in Nineveh, because I can't imagine that it was a very good one, because Jonah's had a real rough few days, so he's probably fairly sleep deprived, he probably doesn't feel very good, but also we know Jonah doesn't want to be here. And when we look at chapter 4 in a couple of weeks, we're going to see that even after Jonah's work is done, he's still really bitter about it. Because Jonah was rebellious, he got dragged back into this, and he kind of hates the people that he's going to preach to. And so I can't imagine that Jonah's going out through the city very spirited and very excited about this message that he's preaching. And it's not a particularly happy message. And so if I was overviewing this or reviewing this in a preaching class, I probably wouldn't give it very high marks doesn't seem like a very good sermon. There's not a story. There's not good illustrations. No witty jokes. No humor. Jonah has really dropped the ball in this sermon. It's very short, which some people might like. If I got up here and gave you a 16 second sermon, you might be like, thank you. Now we can go get brunch. But Jonah, it was not very long. It was not very, it doesn't seem to be a very gifted or spirited sermon that he delivers. And this shows us a really important thing. Because we can have a very heavy reliance on production for conversion. And I certainly deal with this. As a pastor, as a preacher, I want to make sure that I do a good job preaching. I want to make sure that I say things the right way and that my content is full and that all of these things work together. And we shape our worship services so they communicate very well. And, of course, we want to do the best that we can as we, as we preach, as we sing, as we do all the things that take place in a worship service. But sometimes this mentality also trickles into the way that we share our faith, into the way that we think about how God works and how God uses us. And we start to feel like if I don't have a certain giftedness, or if I don't know the right way to say things, then I'm going to mess everything up. Or what if I try to share my faith and and the words don't come to me? Or if I stumble over things or I don't say it the right way, am I going to keep somebody from understanding the goodness and the grace and mercy of God? Am I going to rob someone of the opportunity for salvation? But Jonah's sermon reminds us that good news is good news no matter how it sounds. And that God's words have the power to bring radical transformation. Because the last thing that we should expect to take place here is that Jonah walks into the city of people who are often enemies of Israel. And in fact, in just a few generations, are going to come into Israel and take them captive. And so he walks into this hostile territory and starts telling them that his God is going to destroy them in the same way that he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The last thing that we should expect to happen is what happens in verse 5 where it says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. And that's so important, because the people of Nineveh didn't hear Jonah. The people of Nineveh didn't believe Jonah. They heard this message that God has now said twice that he was going to give to Jonah when Jonah got to Nineveh. He delivers this message, and they believed God. They understood that this wasn't Jonah, that this wasn't the prophet speaking to them, that this was the word of God, and he was saying this to them. And so they believed God, and they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Isn't that an amazing picture of why we do our confession of sin every single week? From the greatest to the least, when they heard the word of God, they realized all these things that we think separate us, money, property, power, prestige, none of this separates us in the eyes of God because all of us are guilty of this sin that's bringing this down on our city. And in another amazing contrast, we see the people of Nineveh, as quickly as Jonah rose to flee from God's call, the people of Nineveh ran into his mercy. As soon as they heard this message on the first day, they rose up and they thought, what have we done? What have we brought on ourselves? What horror have we brought into our city? How have we missed this? How have we not known who this God is? And how have we angered him so deeply? What can we do to fix this problem? then it says the word reached the king of Nineveh all the way to the top of the city. And he arose from his throne and he removed his robe and he covered himself with sackcloth. Even the king here steps off of his throne, steps out of his power, takes off his robe and his vestments that identify him as a king, and he puts on the clothing of a common sinner. And then he issues a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. And it says, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast Herd nor flock taste anything. Don't feed them nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God, and let everyone turn from his evil way and from violence that's in his hands. You see, the king understands that this violence is coming. And he understands that it's God who's bringing this violence. And because of that, he's a smart enough man to know that there's nothing that they can do to escape it on their own. And so he says, we need to do something. Something has to change. Something has to give. And so all of us are in this together because we're all guilty of this. And so we're not going to eat. We're not going to drink anything. Tear your clothes, mourn, put ashes on your face, and cry out to God for mercy and grace and turn from the things that have got us in this situation. And then he says, who knows? Maybe, maybe God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not perish the end of his proclamation, the king ends it by saying, who knows? And that is an awesome and horrifying question. Because the people of Nineveh, they didn't know God well enough to know what kind of God he was. They didn't know God well enough to know for sure who he was, but they held on to this hope of mercy. And that hope of mercy was all they needed for everything to change. Sometimes, for followers of Christ, our salvation can feel a little bit like Ninevite hope. We know who we're supposed to be. We live the Christian life the way that we think we're supposed to live it. We say our prayers. We come together for worship. We serve. We do all these things that we know are right and and things that Christians should do, and we do them all under the umbrella of hope. We do them all under the umbrella of the hope that we're right. We do it all under the umbrella that we hope that God is who he says he is and that he's done what he said he's done and that he will do everything that he promised that he will do. And sometimes we can feel a little bit like the Ninevites. But while the Ninevites' hope was blind, ours isn't. Because on this side of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. See, the Christian hope is not a blind hope, but it's a hope that has an assurance. And that assurance is based on what we're going to celebrate next Sunday, but what we celebrate every single Sunday, and that's the resurrection of Christ that we have the authority through Scripture to know that God has already done what he said he was going to do and that he came in the person of Christ and that he offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross and then three days later rose from the dead so that we can look at that event, so that we can look at that historical fact and know that if we experience death like Christ, we will also be united with him in a resurrection like his. We have a hope. That's based on a promise, but it's based on a promise that has legs, a promise that took on flesh and blood, a promise that became one of us for us and offered himself as a sacrifice and then rose again as an assurance. And so when we look at the Ninevites, if we see these pagans that are peasants and kings, but people who had no connection or or reason to worship God. When they heard the word of God, in fact, when they heard the word of God that was very condemning to them, that they were able to see so much power in that, that the entire city was overwhelmed with grief and with anguish and cried out to God mightily and tore their clothes and repented and turned away from the evil things that they were doing. If that city was able to do that just because of that one proclamation that Jonah made, how much more can we be people of repentance, who see not the the call for condemnation, but the call of grace and mercy that comes through Jesus and understand the merciful and gracious God that we serve and day after day do what Jesus called us to do and take up our cross and follow him. To day after day turn away from evil, to turn away from our sin and pursue Christ with everything that we have because we have a hope that can never be taken away. We have a hope that can never dissipate, a hope that will never fail because it's based on the promise of a God who we know intimately because he knows us intimately through Christ. And not only did he tell us what he was going to do, he showed us what he was going to do in Christ and he gave us that assurance. And so we should follow the example of the Ninevites make war with our sin and turn from our evil ways and pursue Christ day after day after day because we serve a God who is great and merciful. And so Jonah changes his direction. Because of that, Nineveh changes their hearts. And then finally, God changes his mind. This might be the strangest and most complex part of the story. This is a story that has a giant fish, It's a story that has storms called by God. It has plants and worms. It has shipwreck. All of this kind of stuff happens in this incredibly interesting and unique story. And yet here in verse 10, we maybe have the most profound and the most difficult statement in the entire book. In verse 10, it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. God saw the repentance of the Ninevite people. And knowing full well what he had planned on doing to them, God relented. God sent Jonah in there to tell them that he was going to destroy the world and God, or destroy their city. And God's not a God who says things that he doesn't intend to do. And so knowing full well what he was going to do, God, because of their repentance, changed what he was going to do in the life of the Ninevite people. And this can be hard to grapple with, especially in a story that is so fixed on the sovereignty and the control and the foreknowledge and the plan of God. But We have to remember that Scripture reveals to us who God is. We don't get to tell Scripture who God is. And so we find here in the book of Jonah is a God who not only speaks to us, A God who not only listens when his creation cries out, but a God who reacts to our cries for mercy and for help. And it's a really beautiful thing. Because again, these aren't God's people that he's reacting to. This is a foreign people. These are pagan people who had never worshipped him before, who had never given him a second thought, or really didn't even know who he was. And yet because of their cries for mercy and because of their repentance, he changes what he's going to do. He relents from the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But we have to remember is that, that this change of what God is going to do is in no way inconsistent with God's sovereignty. God is absolutely still in control. He's the one who's going to decide what he does with Nineveh. He's the one that makes that decision. None of this is ever outside of his grasp, outside of his reach or outside of his plan. But it does, again, reveal part of God's character as a good father. It reveals part of God's character as a compassionate creator. And what's so amazing about the book of Jonah is that in this book, we see the sovereignty of God and the mercy of God on full display. He's a God who can send and calm a storm with ease, that he can mark out every step of Jonah's journey, even as he rebels, and he can work all of those things to put Jonah in the exact place that he needed to be at exactly the right time, and then also can show pagans compassion and mercy as they repent, and he relents from the wrath that he was going to bring them. New American Commentary, I love the way that it words this, when it talks about this passage of Scripture and God's mercy here. It says, The turning of the Ninevites demonstrated at least a recognition of their condition before the Lord. God's compassionate heart is always sensitive to those who cry out for mercy. This truth is evidenced powerfully here in verse 10. This passage speaks of the incredible mercy of God's heart, of his incredible love. And here one finds if irrefutable evidence that God wishes not for the destruction of the sinner, but for the redemption and reconciliation of his creation. Even if the repentance was not thorough, God's hand of judgment was removed, at least temporarily, to give this frail flower of searching sufficient time to bloom. Jonah 2 is one of these foreshadowings of something better to come. Because we know that God sent this prophet to a foreign land really for a very unique and and one and only time. And it's this picture of what Christ is going to do as he takes the good news of salvation into the world. And so Jonah, proclaiming a message of destruction, gave the people of Nineveh an opportunity to see God for who he was and to cry out for mercy. And God, being rich in mercy and a loving and kind God, spared them. But as the commentary said, their deliverance was temporary. This generation repented, but then a generation or so later, the people were right back in their old ways and right back in their sinfulness. So it's pointing us towards something better and something more permanent. Jonah 3 is calling us to look for a time that the God who is just and who is sovereign and who will one day drive out all the powers of hell from the world he created, and he will judge sin and sinner once and for all, also has a plan to reconcile repentant sinners and save them to an eternal hope in Jesus Christ. And what's so amazing about what happens when Jesus enters the world is that through Christ, God doesn't wait on us to repent, but God offers mercy before we ever look for it. That God offers grace before we ever even know that we need it. And as we've talked about time and time again, the message of salvation is that God doesn't scare us out of fear or threat into a relationship with him, but he first offers us mercy and grace and calls us into that salvation. And so like we do every week, it's important to know that that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. It's not a temporary salvation based on the repentance of of these sinful people like in Nineveh. But it's something more beautiful and more pure and more eternal as Christ came first to offer himself as an act of mercy and grace. And the Bible says that anyone who trusts in Christ for salvation, that they are a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. That God's mercy calls us into that repentance, calls us into that life of following him. It's his grace that makes us whole and makes us new. And if you've never trusted in Christ for salvation before, then I would encourage you to, to talk with me, talk with Pastor Adam, talk with Pastor David about what it means to trust in Christ for salvation, to see that mercy that was poured out for us. that the the people, the Ninevites, had to earn that God gives so freely and graciously to us. And so Jonah enters into Nineveh, and absolutely everything changes. His life changes, possibly not even for the better, because he doesn't seem to get it. But the Ninevites, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people in Nineveh have their lives radically changed changed. And all of this points us towards another important entrance inside of scripture. When hundreds of years later, Jesus would tell his disciples that it was time to go into Jerusalem. Something that he had been talking about and hinting at and telling stories about for a long time was now finally coming into fruition. And he tells his disciples to go and find a donkey and that he's going to ride a donkey into Jerusalem. And while Jonah walked into a hostile territory with people who likely wouldn't have liked him, possibly could have wanted to kill him, Jesus rides into Jerusalem as a hero. With people standing on the side of the streets with palm branches and with their clothes, waving them up and down and laying them on the ground before him, crying out, Hosanna, God save us. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah to come and to deliver them. But while Jonah went into a hostile place that turned to repentance and turned to worshiping God, Jesus walked into a very welcoming city. But just a few days in, whispers started. And people started conspiring behind the scenes. And religious leaders and authorities who were tired of the message that Jesus was saying began to figure out how they could take care of this problem. And in just a matter of days, the people were now crying out, crucify him. The voices in the crowd were now angry and full of animosity as Jesus is put on mock trial, as Jesus is mocked, as Jesus is beaten, as Jesus is tortured for doing absolutely nothing wrong until he gets to the point where we're going to celebrate and reflect on Friday when he goes to the cross to offer himself as a once and for all sacrifice. But then comes Easter when Christ raises from the dead and gives us that hope and that assurance of salvation. And as we look at Jesus in contrast to Jonah, which is what we're going to do next week, as Jesus calls himself something better than Jonah. When we look at Jesus, we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, not to save a city, but to save the world. And so as we look at the change that happened from this very flawed prophet walking into a city, we're reminded of the beauty that comes when the Savior, when the Son of God walks into Jerusalem to enact the plan that God had before the foundations of the world to bring salvation into the world through his one and only Son. And so as we start Holy Week on this Palm Sunday, let's do so by singing Hosanna to the better Jonah who rode into Jerusalem to do for us what we could never do on our own, to help us to receive the grace and the mercy of God through his own sacrifice so that we could be called children, sons and daughters of God. Let's pray.